Hey, my name is Philip. I'm one of the leaders here. Uh, if you do come in a little bit later, great to see you. I hope you're having a fantastic morning with us. Uh, lots going on at King's Church at the moment, as you just heard from Christy. Um, we're spending three more Sundays, as hopefully you'd all know, in this particular venue as we work through to consider whether it could be our permanent venue. I think the key things to consider really are how we best serve and love our children, and obviously also some of the logistical things about being down here as well. But really appreciate your prayers and your feedback as we work through these three Sundays. Obviously, with Simon being uh, absent at the moment, we have some guest preachers coming in. It was great to have Liam last week. Did you enjoy Liam last week? Ever so helpful. Hey, I've been, I've been trying to catch myself from saying I'm busy all week. I've been having that little kind of catch. Well, oh, mustn't say that. I mustn't say that, although it feels true sometimes. Uh, next week, we're going to have another guest preacher. Um, so at the moment, in terms of our Acts series that we were working through, I've just pressed pause on that for the moment. Didn't really make sense to start it and stop it and start it and stop it. So we'll start that again in June. So I'll be speaking on something just to kind of stand alone, if you like, this morning. And in terms of guest preachers, uh, I'm delighted to say we've got Phil Moore joining us next week. Uh, some of you will know Phil Moore. It's a real privilege to have him. In fact, I discovered this week that actually this is the only Sunday in the whole of 2015 that he would have been able to join us. So we're really, really blessed to have him. If you don't know Phil, uh, his face will appear behind me very shortly. Um, Phil leads Everyday Church, which is a multi-venue, multi-site church in southwest London. Uh, he's part of the he will appear very shortly, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, he's part of the Southwest London, uh, sorry, the, part of the New Ground leadership team. Uh, he's written some fantastic commentaries, the Straight to the Heart series, really helpful stuff to help you understand the Bible. He's a superb uh, preacher, a very gifted leader. He's become a, a real kind of friend and inspiration to me. Uh, I would love us to really make sure we're here next Sunday. It's a real joy to have him. Encourage your life groups to be here next Sunday and your other friends in church. Uh, next Sunday will be a really significant Sunday for us. Uh, and I think it'd be ever so good if we had a fantastic uh, turnout in the sense of the whole of our church here together to enjoy what Phil will bring. Okay, let me pray and then we will get into what God's going to say. Lord God, we thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for the glorious truths that we've heard, that we are free because of you, Jesus. Thank you so much that the life of the believer is one of freedom. It's not one of ease. <laughs> it's not one of necessarily luxury and comfort and without suffering, but it's a life of freedom and satisfaction and joy, and we want more of it. We're greedy for more of it. God, I pray you continue to speak through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. When was the last time that you were in the presence of greatness? Present company, accepted, obviously. <laughs> person. When was the last time you were in the presence of someone or something truly great? I wonder, I wonder what memories are fizzing through your mind even now. Let me tell you a story about time when I encountered greatness, when I was in the presence of greatness. And guess what? It involves university and rugby. I, these are my only stories I have. Like, I, I'm, just confess that, I'm done when it comes to stories and illustrations. So back in 2001, I was at university, met some good lads in the first year. We loved our rugby and that kind of formed the basis of our, of our friendship, really. And in the first year of, of university, we also found a, a girl in, the, in our year who also loved rugby and... Her dad was one of the England rugby coaches. So I have to confess that our sort of um, friendship towards her may have had some other motivations other than just general charm and friendship. We began to get quite excited. Could she maybe get some kit? Could she maybe introduce us to players, that kind of stuff? We used to get quite excited about it. We were a mature bunch, as you can tell. And in the, in the second year of university, we got tickets as a bunch of four of us to go to Twickenham down the road to watch England play. And in the lead-up to the game, this girl suggested that she was going to the game as well, and she might be able to get us into the players' lounge afterwards. I know, where all the, where all the players kind of hang out. Some of you are looking so disinterested right now. It's like, 
another one of Elwood's stupid sport illustrations. Come on, stick with me. And so during that lead up to the game, we're thinking, is it, it going to work out? Is she going to get us in? It's kind of touch and go. She wasn't sure. No promises. Might happen, might happen. So then during the game, more excitement, more anticipation building. Is it going to happen? After the game, phone rings. Sure enough, it's this girl. Guys, I've got you in. Come round to this gate. I've got some passes. Can get you into the players' lounge. Try and behave yourself, she said. But I'll meet you next to such and such gate. Make sure you're there. So more anticipation building. We make our way round to this, to this gate. All the security guards are there. And sure enough, she appears, gives us these kind of passes. And the security guards look pretty suspicious as we kind of make our way in to this kind of players' lounge where their friends and family are. And you walk in. There's loads of food there, which is, again is a massive bonus for us when we're at university. And... All of the England rugby players are there. And when you're rugby fans like we were, this is extremely exciting. We were in the presence of greatness, as far as we were concerned. Johnny Wilkinson, Lawrence Delalio, <laughs> all of these kind of guys. That guy with the hair is actually me, believe it or not, <laughs> on the second from the left. Um, so Messrs. Wilkinson and Delalio were having quite a nice time with their family before these four reprobates turned up and insisted on having stupid photos and generally embarrassing themselves. And we had a great time doing all of that until eventually our friend said, ah, probably best you go now, guys. <laughs> and, we, uh, and we slipped off. Let's move on to the, the next slide. And um, I think really for us, we, we genuinely felt on the train home, there should be a slide in between, maybe you go back, sorry. We genuinely felt on the way home, and there's no exaggeration to say, we were like, I think we've encountered greatness. We were in the friend, Johnny Wilkinson. Like, I think most of you would hopefully know who he was, the man that kicked England to glory in 2003. I think, as far as I'm concerned, is like one away from sainthood. We're, like, we're in the presence of greatness. We're in the presence of greatness. We talked about it for ages. We put the photo online. It like, went onto BBC Sport website. We felt we were genuinely famous for a few minutes. And guess what? Uh, 14 years later, I'm still talking about it. My friends will be very amused about our time in the presence of greatness. And it strikes me that greatness, in some senses, is defined, today at least, by how difficult the great person is to access. Sometimes greatness can be defined by how difficult they are to get to. A truly great sportsman is virtually impossible to meet. So some examples. Today, perhaps, you might know that recently there was a huge boxing match. More sport, but just last one. There was a huge boxing match recently, the most expensive boxing match of all time. And you could pay, next slide, $650,000 for a ringside seat alongside Will Smith. So there he is. He's paid $650,000, apparently, for his ringside seat at the Mayweather-Pacquiao uh, fight. The a chance to access greatness and be alongside him and observe this boxing match apparently was worth $650,000, and people paid it. Obviously, no one can just stroll into number 10 Downing Street and expect just to sit with the cabinet. You wouldn't just access that level of greatness. Now, the observant amongst you will notice there are a few different faces there that will no longer be taking their seat at the cabinet, but you wouldn't just stroll in, would you, and expect to get a seat with, this, with these guys? Some of you may not want to, I don't know. <laughs> What about the world of business? Some of you work in large businesses, large employers. Your CEOs might be deemed to be, if not great, then at least inaccessible, I imagine. What about this guy, CEO of Facebook? Pretty difficult to access, I imagine. Very closely guarded diary, lots of personal assistance, probably some security. CEOs can add to their greatness by being very difficult to access. Last example, why would people, unless you're a big Harry Potter fan, why would you queue up for eight hours, next slide, 
Anticipation is just killing us. Why would you queue up for eight hours to meet J.K. Rowling in the rain in Edinburgh, which I gather people did recently, queued up for eight hours in the rain in Edinburgh to meet her if it wasn't for the opportunity to access her greatness? Eight hours people queued up for. People came from Australia to queue up for eight hours to then have their book signed and go back to Australia. <laughs> because they wanted to access greatness. It was an opportunity to be in the midst of what they deemed to be great greatness. I think as human beings, we are in some senses built to appreciate greatness. Our hearts are drawn towards greatness. The human heart desires deep down, I would argue, to know greatness, to access greatness, and be validated and approved by greatness. That's probably the real lure of paying all that money to sit next to Will Smith and watch the fight, was the chance to talk to him, possibly, be approved by him in that sense. And I was reflecting on that this week, thinking of the parallels to the Christian message. And if you're new to Christianity, I guess this sentence really does sum up the Christian message. The Christian message is this. We are invited, as we kind of heard this morning, to access and enjoy the greatness of God. We are invited to access and enjoy the greatness of God. That's the story of the Bible. God has made his greatness knowable and accessible. That's the whole story of the Bible in many ways. We're invited into a relationship with a great God who offers us not just approval and validation, but unconditional love and acceptance. So, title this morning, therefore, is Access to Greatness. Access to Greatness. And we're going to look very quickly at one passage in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament to see how this works. Three points this morning, for those of you who love taking your notes on your nice shiny desks. Access to Greatness anticipated. Access to Greatness created. And Access to Greatness enjoyed. So first of all, access to greatness anticipated. To do that, we need to go back to 1000 BC. We need to go into the city of Jerusalem in Israel. And we need to meet probably Israel's most famous king, David. And he has some words to say about this issue or this desire of the human heart to access the greatness of God. And David wrote many songs of worship, not dissimilar to the ones we were singing this morning. He wrote a number of songs, and one of the songs he wrote we see in, in the book of Psalms, in chapter 5 and verse 7. And David says this, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Can you move the slide on, do you think? I through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. What's David doing? Very simply, he's singing the praises of God, thanking him for the love that God has showed him. David was an anonymous shepherd boy, and the love of God has brought him from that anonymous shepherd boy lifestyle experience all the way through to being king of Israel and winning mighty victories. David has known amazing, abundant, steadfast love. And now, David is acknowledging perhaps God's greatest kindness to him and his people, the privilege of being able to access him, the privilege of being able to worship him, the very thing that human hearts were made for, to access not just created greatness, but the greatness of the creator. David is beginning to sing his thankfulness that he has the privilege of accessing the greatness of God. I'm a worshiper because of your abundance and steadfast love. And yet... David is, maybe unwittingly, showing us that there's even more to be had. He is anticipating something even greater, greater access to be enjoyed. So 
David lived at a time, those of you who know your Old Testament will know, that David lived at a time when access to God was, in fact, in some senses, limited. So in 1000 BC, the Israelites were the people of God. God dwelt with them. A perfect God dwelt amongst very imperfect, fallible people. But there was not direct access to him. God was and is holy and perfect. So God dwelt amongst sinners, if you want to use that Bible word, but he needed to maintain the purity of his holiness. And so really before David's time, and then during David's time, a system of kind of tents and courtyards was constructed called the tabernacle. And something along those lines should appear behind us now. I don't worry too much about all the text on the screen, but I hope the image is a helpful one just to show you roughly what this system of accessing God was like. Now, under David, he had relaxed, in some senses, the tabernacle system. There was a much freer sense of worship under his rule. But the clear uh, separation that God had ordained in Moses' time was very much kept. So the law of God that God had laid down was good and perfect, utterly good, designed for human flourishing. But the reality was, and I think all of us would know this, that even the most moral of male and female Israelite, even the most moral human being, could not keep God's law perfectly. David certainly could not keep God's law perfectly. If you read David's life, man, God uses him powerfully, blesses him powerfully, but he makes some severe, significant blunders. And so such a person, full of fallibility and rebellious heart and so on, can't just simply stroll into the presence of God that final part behind the second purple curtain. That was where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God was said to dwell exactly there. And so a person full of a corrupt heart, a fallible heart, an imperfect heart like you and I, cannot just simply stroll into the presence of God. That was the situation under which David and his people lived. And the Bible is very clear that the results of our fallible, rebellious heart that lives contrary to God's heart is death, and so nobody would dare just wander into the presence of God, the intimate, final presence of God, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. So that's why, if we go back to the, the verse, next slide, that's why I look at more closely at what David says. Although he says, I will enter your house, he also says, I will bow down toward your temple. By temple, he means tabernacle. There wasn't a temple built yet. That was his son that did that. So although David has added more freedom to the worship in the tabernacle, he knows he can only go so far. He is worshipping towards the Holy of Holies, towards God's presence. He would have been permitted to come, back, back to the temple, please. He would have been committed to come into the outer areas, but he, even David, would not have been permitted to enter the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. He would not have been permitted to open that last curtain and enter the presence of God. Only one person could do that. Many of you will know there was a high priest who was appointed under this system. There was one high priest and only he, once a year, would be able to do this. He would have to ceremonially cleanse himself, offer a sacrifice on behalf of himself and be, if you like, uh, representatively cleansed. And he would then, only then, he would make his way. He would draw back that last purple curtain and probably with an enormous degree of trembling and awe, he would go into that final area, the very presence of God himself, and he would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people, including David, 
And the blood of the lamb acted as a substitute for the blood of sinful human beings. And the priest offered that sacrifice on behalf of the people. And God granted forgiveness as a result. So the greatness of God is knowable to a great extent by David and his people. And it's experienced by them. You read the Psalms and you know that David's a man who experiences the greatness of God, the very thing that his heart was built for. And the system continues in the form of a temple rather than a tabernacle for some thousand years. And it's good. It's a good system. The law of God is good. God continues to lavish his goodness upon the people of Israel. But it does point to something even better. It points to something even better. I don't know if you've ever been to a really good restaurant and had an amazing starter. I don't know, seared scallops with lime and chili. Amazing, beautiful starter. Now, no matter how good that starter was, you wouldn't say, actually, waiter, bill, please. I'm done. That was really all I came for. I'm off, thanks. Would you? No matter how good the starter was, you wouldn't leave before the main course. The starter is there to quite literally whet your appetite, isn't it, for the main course. Or maybe you've been to a fantastic gig or a concert and you know who you're going to see, but you get there in good time, get your drink, and you see one or two of the support acts beforehand. And they're amazing. You're like, wow, this is amazing young talent that's on, on the stage here, really enjoying it. But you wouldn't then go home, would you, before the main act that you came to see came on? It's anticipating something more. A great starter, a great support act is anticipating something even better. And the system that David is under is anticipating something even better. It points to the day when access to the greatness of God will not be restricted, but will be complete. So second point, access to greatness created. Access to greatness created. So if I go back to the story with the rugby guys, something had to happen for us to access greatness. To get into that room, something had to happen. It wasn't enough for us to talk about it, to anticipate it, to get excited about it. Just one more excuse to show it. <laughs> something had to happen for that to take place. So we got all the way to the gates. We had the phone call. We knew what was likely to happen. But our friend, she had to physically come out and give us passes for us to be able to access greatness. Something had to happen. And so it is with with Christianity, with God. For humanity to access the greatness of God, something spectacular has to happen. Something spectacular has to happen for that system to get even better and for humanity to access the greatness of God. Let me give you three things that happen, three things that need to take place for humanity to truly access the greatness of God. One, and there's a beautiful irony here, Jesus, God himself, gives up his greatness in order to create access to the greatness of God. Jesus leaves the bliss and perfection of heaven, just mull on that for a second, the bliss and perfection of heaven, all he's ever known, son, father, spirit, beautiful harmony, joy, delight, beyond and outside of time itself, he leaves that, he leaves that greatness, it's indescribable greatness, to be born into scandal and poverty and ignominy, and anonymity for 30 years. Second thing that happens is that Jesus does what no other human being had ever done or could ever do. He obeys the law of God perfectly. And thirdly, 
he continually demonstrates over and over again the same abundant, steadfast love. Remember the phrase David used? Jesus continually demonstrates abundant, steadfast love over and over and over again. It's those three things that collide spectacularly, effectively at the cross. Jesus leaving the greatness of heaven, living a perfect life without blemish or spot, and then causing the, the steadfast, abundant love of God to explode. And it's in the hours before and during the cross, isn't it, where we see the abundant, steadfast love of God particularly. Those of you who know the, the Christian story of those last few hours of Jesus' death, you'll know some of the things that Jesus went through. And it's abundant, steadfast love. The same love that David saw, witnessed, and anticipated, it's that love, abundant, steadfast love, that carries Jesus all the way through the process. So remember him in having that last meal, that last supper, Passover, with his disciples, knowing what's to come. And he's loving his disciples, serving them, washing his feet, washing their feet, commissioning them to an amazing adventure, forgiving his betrayer as he exits the room. It's abundant, steadfast love that takes Jesus through that meal into the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, in the middle of the night. Jesus confronting alone whilst his disciples sleep, confronting alone the horror of what is to come. It means that he virtually or even literally sweats blood, such is the trauma of what he anticipates. And he doesn't waver. He doesn't waver. Why? Because abundant, steadfast love, his desire for humanity to be given access to the greatness of God is sustaining him all the time as he sits in that garden confronting the unimaginable pain that he is about to go through, both the physical pain and the spiritual pain of absorbing separation from God and wrath from God, and it's steadfast love that causes him not to go back, but to take his arrest and move forward into the story. It's steadfast, abundant love that sees him go to trial after trial, being mocked, abused, spat at, falsely accused. Abundant, steadfast love sees him go from trial to trial to trial. He goes to scourging, and it's abundant, steadfast love that sees him go through every single horrific lash of that whip, a, a, a scourging that would have killed most men. Abundant, steadfast love of God sees him through the whole thing. Abundant, steadfast love of God sees him pick up his cross and carry it all the way to his death. Every single step, it's abundant, steadfast love that's carrying all the way through to ankles being nailed in, wrists being nailed in, breath effectively suffocating him all the way through till he cries with his last breath, it is finished. And the temple curtain, the same one that David couldn't go through, rips in two. It's finished. It was abundant, steadfast love that carried him all the way through to that. And Mark tells us that as he shouted that final breath, it is finished, the temple curtain rips in two and access to the greatness of God has been created. It's the wonder of the gospel. Jesus could become the perfect high priest, the only priest who'd lived a perfect life. He could offer that sacrifice on our behalf and he was the sacrifice. At the same time, abundant, steadfast love explodes on the cross. And Jesus is the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice and the temple curtain rips in two and the very thing that human hearts were born for and have yearned for to access and enjoy true greatness is achieved. It's an amazing gospel. But how's it to be enjoyed? How's it to be enjoyed? How do we live in it? So third and final point, access to greatness enjoyed. How do we enjoy this greatness? 
How wonderfully the Bible helps us. There's a passage in the New Testament in a book called the book of Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews really helps us to understand the magnificence of this access that has been created. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. I'm in chapter 10, verse 19 to 22. He says, brothers, meaning brothers and sisters, since we have confidence now to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near now with a true heart and a full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What a summary that is of what Jesus achieved on the cross. Access to the greatness of God created, not through our own greatness or lack of it, but through the greatness of Jesus. The writer's saying, guys, it's, it's new. It's a new day. It's a new time. You can come in. You can take part. No longer is the goodness and greatness of God something to be observed and anticipated. It's something to be enjoyed and taken part in. It's for all who would believe. So my question this morning, if you're a Christian, is do you, do we actively take part in and enjoy the access that has been created for us? Do we know what it is to experience the greatness of God as a reality, an encounter, as well as a theological truth? So a little illustration which I hope will help. Sometimes as Christians, I think, we can kind of live this out a bit like a plane trip, a little bit like a plane trip. So if you're anything like me, when you book a plane ticket, you're getting economy, yeah? I don't know too many of you who, who are kind of punching out first-class tickets on planes and so on, but if it's me, it's economy. Uh, and I know full well that I am an economy passenger. I'm getting an economy seat. I am not going to be getting a first-class seat. So let's just show the first slide, just remind ourselves of what economy seating looks like. There it is, in all its glory. But imagine, <laughs> imagine as you check in, that the checkout uh, person checking you in says, actually, sir, madam, your ticket has been upgraded. You've been upgraded to first class. There it is. There it is. I, I started dreaming about this last night, I'm rather worried. <laughs> Not very spiritual, is it, to be dreaming about the joys of first class travel. And so you know, as you get your ticket, you know all you have to do, well, not to do, let me, you get your ticket, you board your plane, you get to the entrance, you see the stewardess, all you have to do is show your ticket, and she will say, go left. And you, the, the curtain gets drawn away, and you go left into, you don't go right into economy. That's all you have to do. Present ticket, show stewardess, <coughs> curtain is drawn back, and you go into first class. Now, economy is good, I think-ish. <laughs> the food's okay, it's safe. You get to your destination, you can watch movies. Economy is fine, but it's not first class, is it? It's not, the, it's not the amazing bed, it's not the champagne, it's not the massive movie screens, it's not the stewardess waiting on you hand and foot, it's not luxury dining, it's just okay. I think, as Christians, I know it's a silly example, but I think it's helpful in just considering sometimes we can kind of just choose to stay in economy. We can choose to stay away from the, the wonder and the majesty and the greatness that is actually ours. 
It's a bit like taking your ticket, going on board, looking at it, it says it's stamped first class, look at the stewardess, and go right into economy. And you can kind of look, don't you, down the aisle. You can look, I've often looked. <laughs> That's probably quite good in there, behind that curtain. And we can do that, I think, as Christians. We can sit in economy, wondering what it's like in first class. And actually, the Christian life is one of first class. Not in the sense that we are promised luxury and comfort. In fact, quite the opposite. But first class in the sense that we're promised the best that God has for us. He wants us to access what he has at such cost to himself, as we heard, created for us. He doesn't want us to remain at a distance on the plane, going in the same direction, safe and secure, but not necessarily enjoying the wonder that his son has purchased for us. So how do we actually do that? How do we encounter, how do we, if you like, sit in first class? How do we encounter the greatness of God so that it touches us and changes us and fuels us and gives us all that we need? There are many ways, aren't there? In worship, for example. Time of corporate worship is where we meet and encounter the greatness of God. That's why we start off singing songs about him, not us. Because he's great and he's created access for us to him. Sitting under preaching, when somebody opens up truthfully God's word, we should be encountering the greatness of God. <clears throat> Studying scripture, reading it, digesting it, you begin to encounter the greatness of God. You begin to have your, your eyes lifted, your gaze lifted, your perspective broadens. In the beauty of nature, don't you? See the greatness of God when you take time to look at nature. In the beauty of human beings who increasingly represent the wonderful, great character of God because of his work in them. Have you had that experience? Where you think, I'm starting to see something of Jesus in what you're like. I'm starting to see something of what God is like in you. You're encountering the greatness of God at work in someone. When someone uses their God-given talents and gifts, you're seeing something of the greatness of God. In the institution of marriage, you see something of the greatness of God at work. But finally, and the one area I want just to finish on is in prayer. I want to close with some practical things to help us in prayer to encounter the greatness of God, to sit in first class in our times of prayer. Now, if you're anything like me, prayer is not always. In fact, often is not always. Some glorious time as I'm in first class, lying on my bed, a champagne, great meal, it's me. Rarely like that. Prayer's hard, as Liam said last week. Prayer can be really hard work sometimes. You ever had that experience of thinking, I'm not even sure God is here, let alone inviting me into the first class. But I've really found this book helpful recently. Tim Keller, some of you will know, is a fantastic pastor and teacher in New York. And he's written a brilliant book simply titled Prayer. And it's really helped me to begin to, to see the wonder of prayer and when I say the formula of prayer, I don't mean a dry, formulaic, religious thing, but it gives very helpful ways to pray yourself into joy and intimacy and friendship and encounter with God. I really recommend it. I'm told the preachers who recommend books like, apparently are quite you know, good and professional, so that's, that's that bit chucked in. But it's a really, really, really good book. I really recommend it. But finally, just to close with this verse in Hebrews again. So I think it could really help us as believers, as a church, and even if you're not yet a believer, this is your way to the greatness of God. Let me just read it again. 
Brothers, since we have confidence now, I'm inserting the word now, but I think it's consistent, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let me just give you four things, and then we'll close. Four things that I use from this passage to help me pray my way into what's been won for me. Now, when I say pray my way in, I don't mean earn my way in. I mean engage in a prayer life that kindles my heart and finds me encountering and experiencing the greatness of God, the very thing that I was born for. Four things. First of all, this passage tells me that Jesus has been both priest and sacrifice for me. Verse 21 tells me he was and is the great priest, the last one, the ultimate one. And it also tells me, verse 20, that his blood was shed, like the curtain was torn, his flesh was torn. It tells me he was priest and sacrifice. And so I start contemplating, God, you left heaven? And you became exactly what we needed? Not just the priest who could offer the sacrifice, but the sacrifice itself? Can you feel your heart begins to kindle towards the greatness of God? Second thing I pray, verse 22. God, thank you that I'm clean. Thank you that I'm clean. The shame of sin has been washed from me. When I come to you in the morning, I'm not cleaning myself. Jesus' sacrifice was perfect and final. I'm not having to clean myself up. So good. Thank you, Jesus. You're the priest. You're the sacrifice. You've created access And in bringing me into access, you've cleaned me as well. I'm encountering the greatness of God. Verse 20, I'm invited into something, quotes, new and living. David knew God in a wonderful way, but his experience pointed to something even better. And that's what I've been given, God. Thank you, a new living way. I'm not in the temple courtyard praying towards the Holy of Holies. I'm in there. It's a brand new thing. And even more ridiculously, God, you have deemed my body to be a fitting temple for your presence to dwell. You feel your heart kindling towards the presence of God. And finally, I pray, thank you, God, that you are inviting me to come into your presence confidently. Verse 19, the writer says, you should have confidence to enter. Verse 22, he says, you should have full assurance of faith. How many times do you feel a lack of confidence coming to God? The writer of Hebrews is saying, that's not for you. That's economy. First class is for you. Total confidence to enter the presence of God. Knowing you've been cleaned, invited. Doesn't mean there's not repentance that takes place during prayer. Keller's very helpful on that as to how repentance works for a Christian. But just, that's just one verse, one practical example as to how you can experience in your own time with God in the morning perhaps not just praying through the stuff, but encountering his greatness. The thing that he made you for and the thing that Jesus accomplished for you. Maybe Keith and Joe could join me. We have a little bit of time to, to worship this great, great, great God. And I want to worship, I want you to consider how you want to respond. As you'll notice these last couple of weeks, I want to help you be increasingly intentional about responding to what you hear. When God speaks, 
even through the imperfections and stuff of a human being that you can just let go. But when God speaks, it's appropriate to respond to him. And I know there are people here this morning, if you say, do you know what? I just feel like I know what's in first. I know about it. I know about Hebrews, Philip, but I just don't feel I'm encountering it. I believe God is inviting you this morning to engage with him, to let someone stand with you and pray through this stuff. It doesn't mean that every morning time is going to be some blissful angels singing around you experience. It's not. But you were not built just to sit in economy observing what might through the curtain. You were built to live in it and access it. Should we stand? Let me just pray. I'm going to pray for two sets of people, if that's okay. I'm going to pray for those of you who are Christians who would think, you know what, I would love to experience what Philip's talking about. I want to pray for anyone who is not sure if they're a Christian. Because that passage in Hebrews tells you the process to experiencing the greatness of God. Lord God, I want to pray for anybody in that second category who might not identify themselves as a Christian. Or feel like I used to be and it's just an irrelevance now. God, I thank you that your invitation remains exactly the same. The Bible says you are patient. You don't want any to miss out on experiencing your greatness, the very thing that our hearts are made for. And I thank you that through Christ, we are invited in to access and enjoy greatness. I pray for anyone in that situation that you would meet with them powerfully now and draw them in through Jesus to know you as the great, great God that you are. I want to play for the believers in this room who would just say, if I'm honest, I feel like I'm in economy. I suspect I know what could be in first class, but I'm not encountering it. God, we're not looking for experiences. We're not looking for a comfortable, luxurious life. But we are looking to have lives full of satisfaction and joy because we continually and consistently encounter and experience your greatness. Right now, Spirit of God, would you descend powerfully upon those people? Fill them afresh with an increasing degree and measure they might be caught up into all that you have for them. Why? Ultimately, for your greatness and for your glory, God, and for their joy. Amen.